When I was in college, uh, I went to college where we had a conservatory of music and there were five performing groups. And you got to take a tour with your performing group twice during your four-year run. So each performing group would go on a tour a certain number a year and it would be every other year. Well, in the band, we got it in our heads that we wanted to do a third tour, a kind of a swan song, slam dunk, this is awesome experience after graduation and not do it do, during spring break, which is when they typically happen, but do it during the summer. Now, Jenny, the lady that I married, was the business manager and she was in charge of contacting all of the churches and venues to set up this tour. And when we hit spring break, we were supposed to have a certain number of venues locked up with a contract. And in the contract, they had to agree, uh, agree to a $650 honorarium that night. Okay? So we were one church short. And the day before spring break, a church from Fort Collins, Fort Collins Colorado called and said, we would love to have the Wheaton Band. It's da-da-da-da, but you need to know we don't do honorariums don't do honorariums, but we will take up a love offering. And the last few groups that have come through, it's been over $1,000, but we just, we can't do the honorarium, so we can't sign that contract. It's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, they promised 1000 so, you know, Jenny had to go report to the dean and tell him whether or not we had locked up enough churches for the tour. What do you do when you want something really bad? Or when an opportunity presents itself. You know, I mean, opportunities don't always come a-knocking. I mean, do you fudge a little or, or tweak things or do something under the table? The, the summer after my freshman year of college, I had a job at Tom Raper RV. Tom Raper RV, Midwest's largest RV dealer. Tent caps, trailers, truck caps, 99 and up. I could do the whole commercial. <laughs> my job those two summers, was to clean up trade-in RVs. Some, some of them would come in, and you'd be like, wow, this is like, you never went camping, did you? And then some of them would come in. <laughs> and there would be critters. By the, end of, by the end of, like, week three, I hated wasps. Wasps love unattended RVs. I mean, you'll open up things. There's just wasps and wasp nests everywhere. Oh, I hated it. And uh, Howard, uh, a guy named Howard is a guy I worked with. Howard the Duck is what we called him. And his favorite thing to do was um, get a can of WD-40, and he, he smoked, so he had a lighter, and we'd just torch him. Okay, hey, Max, open the, or on the count of three, open the door. I was the door opener. He was the torture. One, two, three. <laughs> It was a sight to behold, okay? I worked that job because I needed that money to pay the first semester tuition. And I barely earned enough in the summer to cover the first tuition bill. Now, as irony would have it, Tom Raper RV had this little kind of thing going for the guys in our department. The fellow who turned around the most units got two weeks' pay at the end of the summer. It was a cabonus. And we would get a checklist of things that we had to do for each one. A manager would assess the trade-in, and we would be given the checklist of what we had to do. You know, Sometimes you could just clean something. Sometimes you had to repaint something. Howard kind of fudged the checklist. I mean, I worked fast, but I was not near as fast as Howard. 
And I needed that money really badly. Um, in the early days of Generations, we uh, had an opportunity to purchase a church that had just closed. And I remember in the early days of Generations when people would ask me, well, you know, is there any church property that would work for us? And I would name that property. I would go, well, if there was one in the entire county, it would be that one right there. And it came up on the market. And we were invited to make an offer, and we, we got into it, and we started to have a conversation. And then we realized there were some things that weren't being disclosed. And then we realized that there was another church that had also been invited to make an offer. So we were bidding against another group of Christians and whatnot. But, you know, business is business, right? I mean, that's real estate. That's different, right? The most direct path to success is not always the most ethical one. It's not. When you face a giant, you're going to be tempted to believe that in order to win, that you need to fudge or tweak or disregard God's laws completely. I mean, after all, shouldn't you do whatever it takes to bring the giant down? You and I have got to pre-decide to prioritize our integrity over winning, to prioritize our integrity over slaying a giant. And that's exactly what David did. And we're going to look at that this morning. David, long before he became king, he determined that he would not violate God's commands to get what he wanted or to succeed. Now, we know in hindsight, David didn't do that perfectly, did he? No. But when he honored God's will, he experienced the blessings of God. And when he violated God's will, he suffered. Right? 1 Samuel chapter 16, David gets anointed king. He's told, you're going to be the next king of Israel. 1 Samuel 17, David kills Goliath on, in the valley of Elah. He slays this giant man and turns the whole tide of the battle. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is presented with an opportunity. And we're going to wade through that opportunity. It's one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. So if you brought a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is my favorite Bible story for kids. When we're all done, you're going to be like, that's your favorite for kids? And I'll be like, yes, I love it. Okay, 1 Samuel 24. David, at this point, is on the run. He's on the run because uh, Saul wants to kill him. And there's this song this chant that they do in Jerusalem, and they changed the verses. It used to be, Saul has slain his thousands, and, you know, it was kind of the, hey, our king's awesome, and they added this verse, but David has slain his ten thousands, and I think that kind of irked Saul a little bit, and he became really jealous, and he wanted to kill David, so David had to flee. He was on the run, and while he was on the run, he just kind of picked up this ragtag fleet like Battlestar Galactica, these men that committed to him and committed to a way of honor and committed to honoring the Lord and what they did. And it was David and his mighty men that kind of wandered around the desert, okay? So 1 Samuel chapter 24, and let's, let's just get into it. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. You got to love that, the rocks of the wild goats. If you put a rock feature in your yard, just call it that. It'd be awesome, right? So David's on the run. He's got 600 men, and he hears that Saul is coming for him. And Saul has collected 3,000 of Israel's best troops to come get him. 
David chooses this region, and Gedi, there are just there are hundreds of caves. I mean, they're just everywhere. Cave, 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 cave. Boy, have I got a cave for you. I mean, real estate, and you could sell caves out the wazoo. I mean, just caves everywhere. And so David hides in one of these caves. And that's where we pick it up in verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding back further in that very cave. What are the odds? Did I mention there were hundreds of caves in this region? I mean, Saul and his men, you know, think the coconut, and they're riding along, okay? And they get to this point. Now, when you're the king and you have to go to the bathroom, you don't just dismount and do it right there because everybody's watching you. I don't know if you've ever gotten to be president of the United States, but when you are, everyone's looking at you all the time. So if you need to, like, pick your nose or, I mean, anything, it's captured. People see it. It's on film. It's just the way it goes. Everybody's looking at the leader. Okay, so Saul, as the king, is all eyes are on him. And if you had been a regular uh, soldier, the procession would have kept on going. If you needed to stop and take a break, you stopped and you, you would catch up. But when the king needs to go, the whole thing stops. Right, and he's dismounting. And, and I love the Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew person, but I read that this is what it... The Hebrew literally is, Saul had to cover his feet, which is the Hebrew euphemism for defecating. He had, he had a number two, okay? So it wasn't a number one, it was a number two. So he had a number two, and he needed to do a number two, and so he went into the cave. But again, what are the odds of all the caves that you're going to pick and you need to go, and you need to go at that moment, at that precise point in that particular cave where David and his men are hiding? I mean, is that a coincidence? So he goes deep into the cave. Well, let's pick it up. Verse 4. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Okay? Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do as you wish. Kill him. Oh, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Now, a couple of things about Saul's robe. Robes, this, robes mean something. Uh, in the movie Independence Day, it was the first movie in Hollywood that exploded the White House. It was a traumatic thing for Americans. Americans had never seen the symbol of the presidency in American power blown up like that. Now it's blown up like every other month, okay, just because CGI can do it. But, you know, the, the Air Force One and the White House are symbolic of the president's power. A robe in this culture is symbolic of the office of king. And so when David is cutting off a piece of Saul's robe, there's something a little bit meaningful going on. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, the prophet says that uh, there's a tearing of the robe, and, and Samuel says, your kingdom is being torn away from you. In, in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan, Saul's son, gives David his robe, in essence saying, I abdicate, you're the next king, not me. Okay, so there's, there's some symbolic things going on. And so David cuts his robe, but let's, let's keep going, all right? Verse 5, but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I should not have done that to my lord the king, he said to his men. 
The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill King Saul. He's in a cave. Saul's, his sword's down, his armor's off. He's disrobed. They're crouched. They probably have their knives drawn because he cuts the robe that's on the ground easily. Everything in that cave is screaming, kill him, kill him, now's your chance. He's in the cave, pull the knife, slit his throat, it's done. The thing that you were anointed for, however many years ago, can be yours in this moment if you would just grab the opportunity and get rid of Saul and take the throne. Everything is screaming for David to kill Saul. And yet, David says in the text here, the Lord forbid that I should do this. David is not going to kill the king to become the king. He's not going to violate the laws of God in order to make something happen, in order to seize an opportunity. And that's the problem in the cave. Even though everything is screaming, kill Saul, there's one thing, God's commands, that stand in the way. Look at the speeches that they give. And I want to read these two speeches to you. So, so David restrains his men and didn't let them kill Saul. So Saul gets dressed, re-armored, all tight, the tie is straight, the hat, you know, and off he goes out of the cave, mounts his horse, and as they're leaving, as they're leaving, David comes out. After Saul had left the cave, verse 7, and gone on his way, verse 8, David came out and shouted after him, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. You've got to imagine, Saul at this point has got to be white as a ghost. I mean, he was a hair's breadth away from being snuffed out right there in the cave. The Lord had placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill the king. He is, uh, but I spared you, for I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I did not kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. There's no question who he's talking about. God is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. What a speech. What restraint. I mean, that... That cave was loaded with emotion. All right? Look at what Saul says, verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is, is that really you, my son David? 
and he began to cry. And he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me for today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you've shown me today. And now I realize that you surely are going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me, swear to me by the Lord that when this happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. And then Saul went home and David and his men went back to their stronghold. David has everything Saul wants. David has the blessings of God. David has an opportunity to kill his enemy. Saul went into that region looking for an opportunity to kill David. And what ends up happening? David has an opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, David has the legitimacy to be the king. David has victory over the Philistines. Whereas when Saul is engaging them, it's, it's, a, it's a draw. It doesn't play out well. Why? It goes back to verse 6. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my Lord the King. The Lord forbid that I should kill my Lord the King and attack the Lord's anointing one. That statement right there is akin to Genesis 39 when Joseph, fleeing Potiphar's wife, says, I will not sin against God. Killing a giant, overcoming an obstacle, achieving success will not require you to violate God's laws or your conscience to do so. I'm telling you, it won't. So let me ask a question. And this is a question that you should pose when you find yourself in a cave or when you find yourself facing a giant and you are tempted to do something that is tweaking, fudging. When you are tempted to do something and there's this part of you, the Holy Spirit part of you that is saying, And the question is this, does this option, does this decision violate God's laws? Because here's the thing, when you violate God's laws, you forfeit God's blessing. Look at Saul. Saul disobeyed a very direct command. God told him not to do something, and he went ahead and did it. And David is anointed to be the next king. The Holy Spirit is taken away from Saul. Saul is tormented by his emotions. He is vulnerable to his enemies. And he gets no success. It stinks to lose the blessings of God. Here's, here's where this meets the road, okay? Here's where prioritizing integrity meets real life. It plays out in the life of a young woman, okay? She goes through college, she wants a BA, and she wants an MRS. And she gets to the end of the four years, and she's got the BA, but no MRS. And the next year, no MRS. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. Now she's pushing 30 or pushing 35, and her biological clock is ticking, and she meets a guy, and, and he likes her. And she likes him. And her parents are screaming, marry him! All her friends are screaming, marry him! Everything in her, her biological clock is screaming, marry, marry, marry! Okay? High alert status. And one day on a date, he pulls her aside, and he says to her, you just need to know, I can't wait for the wedding day. I want to experience everything there is with you. I want to be inside of you. I want, you just need to know, I can, you know, this is really important to me. 
And in that moment, she can fudge or she can trust God for the outcome. It's, it plays out in the life of the 14-year-old who idolizes these juniors and seniors in high school. I mean, they are like demigods. They have their own band. They have long hair. The one guy never wears shoes, ever. I mean, coolness beyond measure. And he gets invited to their house for an event. And he shows up, and he doesn't notice that the parents aren't there until on the big screen they start showing stuff. And he says to himself, that's not exactly porn, but, but, and that little Holy Spirit voice is like, <gasps> and in that moment he can fudge. He knows what his parents' rules are. He knows what's right and wrong. Or he can trust God for the outcome. It plays out in the life of somebody who's got a job. And they're working really hard, and they're working really hard, and their hours stink, and their pay stinks, and their coworkers stink. Literally, Gary, in the next cubicle, he stinks because he never showers. I mean, you've brought him arid extra dry and left it on his desk, and it's not, you know, ding, it's not registering. Gary, shower. Okay, everything about the job stinks. And an old acquaintance comes back into your life and has a job offer. You weren't even looking for it. And it's $20,000 more. And when you get into it, you realize that the stuff that you're going to need to say to the clients isn't exactly forthright. Are you going to fudge? Or are you going to trust God for the outcome? Here's the second question that you and I should pose when we find ourselves there. In light of where I want to be someday, what is the wise thing to do? I mean, in light of where I want to be someday, what is the wise thing to do? You're that young woman, and you give in. What are you going to turn around and tell your daughter down the road? Well, honey, mama needed a man, but I don't want you to. What would David say in the face if David had killed Saul in that cave? There would have come a time when one or more of David's sons would have come along and go, Dad, Dad, tell us the story about how you whacked Saul to get the throne. He was going to the bathroom. You had to be really brave, huh, Dad? In light of where I want to be someday, what is the wise thing to do? And here's, here's my two cents worth as a, as a middle-aged man. In America today, there are far too many people that just, they don't know what's in here. They don't know necessarily what the laws of God are. So if you find yourself in a circumstance and you're not sure, find somebody who knows what's in this book. And the question you should pose isn't, what should I do? It's, is what I'm considering, does what I'm considering violate anything you know about God and his ways? That's a much clearer question to ask. Why is this important? David achieved success by and large because he refused to violate the commands of laws to come out on top. Let me tell you the rest of the story from what I walked out in the beginning, right? Remember the conservatory tour that was on the line? Jenny had to tell the dean. She was honest. Well, this is the church. This is what they say. They won't sign the contract. We're, we're a church short. The dean decided to extend the deadline. Three weeks later, the dean decided that he would not require us to seek honorariums. At the end of the tour, when the tour was over, it was the first performing group in Wheaton College's 10-year history that had turned a profit on a tour. 
Remember that job at Tom Raper I had, the one with the wasps? I was not the fastest turnaround guy that summer. Howard the Duck got the ward. He got the money. I worked my tail off, but Howard got the money. When I showed up to Wheaton that fall, I was summoned to the financial aid office. And when I went in, they told me that a church in Minnesota had awarded me a scholarship for $750, a scholarship for which I had not applied, <laughs> which was more than twice what I would have gotten if I had fudged. God will never ask you to violate his laws or your conscience in order to slay a giant or seize an opportunity. And the prayer that I have for you is the prayer that I have for me, which is, God, give me wisdom to know what is right, to do what is right, even when it's hard. Help me to trust you for the outcome.